tonight on Arena. Four stalwarts of the traditional music world come together for a new folk supergroup and Fanola Meredith on her debut novel, The Stamp of Beauty. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Any serious fan of folk music will be familiar with artists like the trio The Whileaways, the Grammy Award-winning American group Cherish the Ladies, the acclaimed Irish trad group Lunasa, and the All Ireland-winning fiddle player Ushin McDermott. Well, Ushin, along with one member from each of those other three great folk acts, have now come together to form. And I have to use the word again because you all loved it so much. <laughs> to form a four-piece supergroup in conjunction <laughs> with Music Network. They are about to embark on an 11-date nationwide tour and delighted that all four individuals have joined me in studio in studio this evening. Ushin McDermott, Noriana Kennedy of the Whileways, Morella Murphy from Cherish the Ladies and Donna Hennessy of Lunacy. Welcome to all four of you. My super quartet, I'm going to call you, <laughs> rather than the <laughs> other word that I've now dropped from my lexicon totally and absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess, Ushin, in, in some ways, this is, this is a music network idea. They've done it before and the whole idea is that You've never played together before as an ensemble. What is the joy of that, first of all, before I go into what are the other aspects of it? Are you talking about for the listener now or for, for ourselves? For you, for yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an absolute privilege, it really is, to be part of this Music Network uh, tour and to be playing with these amazing performers here in the studio with me. It's a lovely idea to put people from different backgrounds, uh, different parts of the country together. And uh, even though we've all known of each other mm. uh, over many years, and of course there's a lot of experience here in the, in the group, we've all been ploughing our own furrows with the various groups as you described. So it's a whole new experience for us to be thrown uh, together and very invigorating. I, you know, I, I really think that this is a kind of opportunity that, that all artists should have. It's a real good reboot for us all, I think. Yeah, and, and Noriana, obviously, of, of the Whileaways in your case, it's not that you get fed up with the mm. people that you've been working with for a, a large part of your life and working very successfully with. That kind of, the new energy... Yeah. What, do, what does it bring? It's lovely. It's 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 not often you get to start at zero again and be <laughs> given time. Um, it's it's quite a privilege to be allowed space and time to start something completely new. And when you're in a group, um, you tend to fall into your certain role and you don't break out of that because that's where you're best left. Um, so here you get to kind of, it opens the lens a bit and you you, you kind of, you can experiment with different things and, and chance things that might have been left on the shelf for a long time. Yeah, and I suppose in, in the case of Charles the Ladies, Morella, was it a case of I want to break free? <laughs> oh, not at all. No. <laughs> not at all, but I'm delighted to be part of this network tour. Yeah. It's great, like I'm delighted to be reunited with Donna as an old friend and Noriana and Oshin. So it's been wonderful and coming up with new tunes and stuff. And so yeah. It's been great, yeah. And, and Donna, while you might have played with one or other of the three people here in studio with us separately or on a, a once-off occasion, yeah. the whole idea is that the quartet is 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 a new energy. That's yeah, the idea behind this. Idea. It's almost a stipulation of the tour that you haven't played together in any meaningful way anyway before. And it's, yeah, it makes it very, very interesting. And like Noriana was saying, you're just starting from scratch. So it's really exciting. Like it's come together very, very easily though too, you know. I think we all get on very well together and that comes out in the music. So mm. everyone's really good at listening and 
we all come from a kind of um, we come from a band mentality so we're we're more interested in making the song or the tune sound good as opposed to egos you know yeah. take the ego out of it and just it's all about the music so yeah it's been really fun so that's all the positive aspects of it but <laughs> what are the challenges because there have to be challenges to now I look at Morella now saying don't, please don't come to me first which means I have to go to the first <laughs> <laughs> challenges well, I suppose, I mean, for me, it would be if, if I've never heard a certain tune before. Then, mm. And if you, you know, we all have other things going on as well yeah. with this, you know, so get the time to sit down and learn these mm. ch- challenging tunes, word. especially the one that Ocean's coming up with now. <laughs> <laughs> they can be, no, I, I, there isn't many challenges. No, it's, been, it's great, you know. So. But I wonder, if, if, Noriana, is, is there a kind of, a, you know, with, with the Wild West, you must have a shorthand at this stage, you know, and, and as no, mm. sometimes a shorthand can mean that maybe an idea that needs a bit more development kind of gets, well look let's just put it to the one side and and you go the the route that you know and that works for, for, for all of you but I suppose not having the shorthand that you have with a, a group of players that you played with for a long time Yeah I think we've been very lucky I think uh, Deirdre Music Network chose very well because yeah. we have Donna who's like this amazing guitarist that's able to bridge the songs and the tunes together and he's been he's been an absolute diamond in rehearsals to just really yeah. pull it all together yeah. so Thank thanks you. Donna so does yeah. um, not saying that you're the leader of the, the pack as it were Donna but in some ways do, do, do you find do, does a person just kind of does this often happen in a group a dynamic where one person kind of not takes the lead but kind of seems yeah. to yeah. seems to yeah. have very much so I'd say yeah. and is that yeah. a role that you that you relish or that you just say, well I, I happen to be Know, doing it here, don't I? Bossy or something. <laughs> a bit of a control freak. <laughs> I have a recording studio. That's my main uh, job. I, yeah. I, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing it a lot. I'm arranging mm. music and helping people arrange their music and throw ideas and uh, all the time. Mm. So it's kind of second nature to me at this stage. I've been doing it so long. So, uh, um, and I, I think maybe I, I come from songs first, and then I spent years playing with bands that only played tunes like Sharon Shannon's band and Lunas's. There was no singers. So I've a maybe a, a balance of the two, you know, yeah. and so it's easier for me to string them together, you know. But the, we, the, everybody here, like Oshin and Morella, are playing bands that have songs, so they're well used to songs yes. as well, which is not every uh, traditional player is comfortable playing songs. So yeah, it's a different we're very dynamic. lucky. Yeah, very much, very, very much. You know, so so. Oshin, um, I don't know if it was Morella or Noriana said, it was Morella said you, that those these tunes that Oshin is bringing in, <laughs> <laughs> bringing into us. <laughs> we have one of them here that you recorded. Tell us a little bit about the march. It's two tunes, actually, isn't it? Um, the march at Kilmore and then keep it up. What was it? About? First of all, tell us about those two tunes and why you thought it would sit particularly well with with this quartet. Yeah, they're two very different tunes uh, to start with. And the, the first one is a, a gorgeous march that was written actually only a few years ago uh, by a great fiddle player uh, from Monaghan called Donald McCaig. Gorgeous uh, tune writer as well. And um, this is a tune that, that I've actually played in the band Taylor that I play with mm. um, normally. And, um, you know, this just really, really suits, you know, Dunn has got such an amazing rhythm on the guitar and, and Morella's sound uh, on, on, on the piano accordion and, and the fiddle kind of complement each other well. So I'd tried this in the band before, but it was a whole new experience to do this here. And, uh, you know, really, really enjoyed it. The real, um, the real then that follows is um, an altogether different tune. I suppose it's, it's, a, it's a lighter, brighter uh, kind of a tune that um, seems to have come out of mm. Scotland and Cape Breton. But, um, you know, like a lot of our tunes, but we don't admit it all. Always. 
<laughs> that they come from mm-hmm. they come from elsewhere rather than we sent them somewhere right. sometimes the traffic is in the other direction okay let's let's have a listen and this is a this is recent obviously how long how long were you rehearsing together for before we you made this particular recording only this, but this particular tune was just a few hours before the before the recording yeah so you literally this is the Brand day new. I d- uh, meet, I didn't know it meet in the morning and Turn on the microphones around lunchtime set, yeah. and, and see what comes up for this particular one. Well, that's interesting. So this is the fresh, <laughs> fresh and raw with all of the goodness of the freshness and the rawness of the rawness. Let's, let's have a listen. Two tunes there, The March at Kilmore and Keep It Up. Um, <laughs> I still can't believe that as we were talking as we were listening to it there. Oshie McDermott on fiddle, uh, Mirella Murray on accordion, Donna Hennessy on guitar and Noriana Kennedy on The Encourager yes. was what you, what, you, what you were playing in that one. But Noriana, like we're saying it as we're listening, they won't say this, but you can say it. That was after a couple of hours. That's an extraordinarily polished sound. How did you feel Absolutely, in yeah. the room? <laughs> You know, because you, yeah, cause you saw this happening. Yeah, and it was a joy today. We did a lot of rehearsing today, um, but the lads kind of went on another couple hours after me because I excused myself for the tunes part. And it was it's a real pleasure just to listen to them. They were getting on great and I could hear the music was fab coming from them too. So. Uh, and Mirelle, like you were saying, was it the first tune that you had, you'd never heard before? You'd no, heard the second tune so you were yeah. kind of a bit familiar with that? Familiar to hear it, but I'd never played it. Mm. But the first tune I'd never heard before, no. No. Is, is Donna that... kind of came up with it. I know that you that you played it, but yeah. Donna thought of it. Yeah, I, I, I recorded an album for Tay, the Oshin's band before, and that I loved that track from us. So that's the only one that we have somebody has played before so I asked could we play that tune mm. because I love it you know that first march so uh, other than that um, mm. but yeah, I, I guess things out from scratch that's kind of the nature of traditional music anyway Ocean, isn't it you know that you're sitting in a session you're not going to know all the tunes no that, exactly <laughs> and you know that's the beautiful thing about the session is the tunes you don't know you should be listening or you are listening and you're, you're assimilating, you're taking these in so that, you know, maybe a few weeks later, a few months, the, the tune might come to you. So you're always learning, um, using the ears, you know, it's soaking in somewhere. <laughs> Who's, whose idea was it to, to record after a couple of hours like that? Like I was presuming you had maybe a couple of weeks. How long did you actually have in terms of rehearsal, Donna? We had two days uh, rehearsing and then we knew we had to record on the third day. It was mm-hmm. kind of, part of it so they could use the recordings for um, promotion etc mm. so so we knuckled down on the third day and says well we better get something that's a bit solid in a set and so we got a, a song and uh, and a set of tunes together and that was our third day yeah I, I, I just find that kind of pressurised I, I don't understand is, is it an enjoyable activity in that case, Marilla? Are, well, you, are you still working? Well, for me, you know? oh God, I'd be nervous wreck doing it. But then when, the, when it comes to the crunch, it just it just works. Then Like we didn't, did we do a couple of takes of it? Maybe we did two takes or something. That was it. Yeah. Now, and excuse my ignorance again on this one. Like, How would that work? I mean, would, would you go through it? Would you listen to it going through a couple of times and maybe fill in a couple of these? Say, well, yeah, I know that little phrase and I know this well, little I phrase. Just, just kept playing it. And yeah. it, it would... 
come from the head, from the ear to the yes. fingers. With oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is it a matter then of getting thought out of the way in some ways? Let let it happen naturally. Um, yeah, because well, you learn it by ear, so it is very natural, you know. Mm. And then once it's once it's up here in my head, it's easier for me to 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 play. All right. If it's not really in my head, that's when. Mistakes and stuff are happening, but anyway, no, she drilled it into my head. And <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I, I've been playing with lots of different players, trad players for donkey's ears, and these two here, Oshin and Morella, are two of the fastest. They just know every tune ever written, and it doesn't care what key you want to play it in, they just do it. If you, they've never heard it, they'll have it off in two seconds. It's just there's a pair of them in it. Usually you might get one <laughs> person at the other time, but to have two together well, is phenomenal. Then for you, Noriana, you know, I suppose, was there an added pressure on you then when it came to the songs? Did you come with a lot of the songs or how did that work out? Yeah, that, yeah, I was lucky enough in that I kind of got to w- walk in with my songbook and kind of open it up and we we tried a few and I'd wait on the reaction and then I, I'd know which ones were keepers mm. and not. So yeah. And and would you would you necessarily have songs, you know, from the from the Wild Away song books or would you have songs that you know, look, that never really worked with yeah, the there's Wild a lot of that. And I'd like to try them out in some different setting. Yeah, there's a well, because it's it's a kind of a, a traditional format, I got to kind of reach into that um, songbook that I, I hadn't in a long time so I kind of recorded a, a traditional album about 10 years ago and with songwriting I drifted away a lot from traditional songs so it's been a lovely venture to go back and um, there's there's a kind of a mixture there of songs of that I've written that I've arranged and of songs I, I just love and other songwriter songs too. Yeah and we'll, we'll come to we'll set up the final song in, in a moment but just to meet you I'm wondering then what is the? Because I'm guessing there's a joy in the fact that you know, look, you have your you have your other projects, you have your other things that are happening. So it's not as if this is your one big chance, and you know, <laughs> if, if it all falls apart, it, it's terrible. But you, you also kind of know, well, this is this is finite because I think it's very unusual for any of these groups that have, because it's happened in cross classical music as well with Music Network. It's very unusual for the machine, I think, yeah. to kind of have a life beyond this. The tour, the music network tour. Totally, you put your, you put your finger on it there, I and mean, it's actually one thing we mentioned today when we were practicing. Like we just have eleven nights, and there's something very special about that that is tangible, and it's I suppose finite in in a way. You know, we we're, and I suppose the same goes for the audience. You know, I mean, they're not going to hear this gig this time next mm. year. Um, Are we breaking up, guys? Oh, sure. <laughs> sorry, to be, sorry to be the one uh, to break it. <laughs> do you know, do you know, Noriana, you said you left the room today. <laughs> a lot of stuff went down. But, you know, and there's a little secret I should let you in on because Donna has composed two absolutely beautiful, beautiful tunes and which haven't been heard to date. And I think that Seamus Begley is part of the, this compositional um, yeah, yeah, treat that you'll be given, Donna. Seamus is a great, great friend of myself and Oshin's. Um I lived in Dingle most of my life and uh, yeah, he was probably my best friend, one of my best friends and very close friend of Oshin's. So yeah, we'll definitely, we were working out stuff today that we'll have to do as a, you know. But I, I suppose there's a, great, yeah. there's a great joy in that. I mean, I remember watching on the, on the news at the night of the funeral and I just did this like, group of musicians in the church yeah. just yeah. almost all Phenomenal. breaking into song well, and music together. Yeah, there was a hell of a lot more musicians outside. There was, and then we said, we were talking about it today. We saw later uh, you couldn't. There was like, plenty of mm. room in the church, and there were hundreds of musicians yeah. outside. All right, um, well, listen. 
Yeah. I'm sure that that those those pieces will will have an added an mm. added um, mm-hmm. a, a, excellence on the on the nights of the tour. I'll give some of the details in a moment. But lead us if would if you if you would Noriana into Mother Says, which Mother is the says. other song that we've we, we've recorded. Yeah, you? it's the song I recorded with the Wildaways, and I just thought it would lend itself so well to the fiddle and the accordion. We do a lot of ooing and eyeing because we don't have a fiddle player in the Wildaways, you know. <laughs> so it's nice to actually get the real thing right. and have uh, Morella and uh, Oshin play on this. It's 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 lovely. Totally. Okay, now let's have a listen to Mother Says, and thanks to all four of you for coming. Thanks, in this evening. Thank you, thanks, Voice of Noriana Kennedy there singing the song Mother Says and she was accompanied there as you heard uh, by the, the newly formed quartet for the Music Network tour Ushing McDermott on fiddle uh, Morella Murray on accordion and Donald Hennessy on guitar and their music quartet touring over the next couple of weeks around the country starting tomorrow night in fact they were telling me they're getting on the road very soon at St John's uh, Theatre and Arts Centre in the Stowell County Kerry uh, Ennis County Clare Counties Cork, Wicklow, Wexford, Dublin, Offaly, Leitrim, Sligo and Galway all covered over the 11 nights. You can get full details of venues, dates and times on musicnetwork.ie. The Stamp of Beauty is the debut novel from Fanola Meredith, a journalist and broadcaster based in Belfast. It tells the story of Lenny Moffat, young married woman living in Belfast whose day-to-day existence is upended by two apparently ordinary events. Her mother, Patty, moves in with her and she applies for a job at a newspaper. Coercive control, the long shadow of the past are just two of the themes that Meredith explores as Lenny embarks on an unfair with the newspaper's editor, Roddy Riceborough. Delighted that Fanola Meredith is with me in, in studio this evening. We're in Belfast here, but where did this novel begin for you, Fanola? Because I think that probably will open up many of the themes that you have in there. Well, it did begin in Belfast in the sense that it began with a book that I found in the library at Queen's University in Belfast. wasn't actually looking for this book at the time, but it caught my eye. And it was a big red hardback book. It just had the single word Olympia on the spine. I thought, oh, what's that? I, I got it down from the shelf and had a look at it. And it turned out to be a book of photographs by Lenny Riefenstahl, um, who had filmed the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the Nazi Olympics, effectively. And she'd also made um, propaganda films previously for the Nazis. So... I didn't know an awful lot about her. I was interested to see the images because some of them were incredibly beautiful, um, particularly her shots of the the high dive. Um, and she'd done all sorts of innovative things when she was filming and, and photographing the Olympics. And these particular uh, photographs were taken from below, looking up at the, at the divers. So they're almost silhouetted against the sky. And they were just so gorgeous. But I was conflicted at the same time, because obviously 
they're effectively bought and paid for by Hitler. So it was just it was it was a conflict that that lingered with me, and I kept thinking about Lenny Riefenstahl, and I I found out a lot more about her. I read some some books, and I watched a really bizarre documentary film in which she starred in, in her her very old age. She was in her nineties, and oh, she was a piece of work. She really was. Highly delusional. She claimed that, you know, she didn't know what what was going on at that time. She didn't know about Nazi atrocities. She just couldn't believe that was the case. And she kind of maintained that, that, that stance her whole life. So there, there are so many aspects to what you have in there. But the two big ones that jump out at me are, first of all, just because you see something doesn't mean that it's as beautiful as it looks yes. or that it even is what it what it seems to be. But the second one, and perhaps um, more important in, in this book, is the past and and dealing or not dealing with the past. And when you have a book set in Belfast, even though Lenny Riefenstahl is, the, the, I suppose, the jumping off point for, for what you were doing here, it is set in Belfast. There's a big past that you have to contend with there, there recent is. past. Exactly. And the book... You know, one of the main themes of the book is, you know, do we ever escape the past? Um, whether you know, as a society, you know, do we do are we able to to move on from from the darkness and chaos that there that there has been in Belfast, and also in families, are we able to to move on from the the difficult patterns and difficult relationships that there can often be in families? So what I did was I based the the mother in the book, um, Patty Barber on Lenny Riefenstahl or my impression of her mm. um, and she's she's terrible really she's like she's like a sort of old teenager she's never really grown up and um, she's she's a real burden to to Lenny, her daughter. She named her daughter I mean, Lenny. She called the daughter Lenny after, after Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah, which Thanks is, for that, Matt. Yeah, a pretty dire thing to do to your daughter, you know, name, name her after a, a Nazi propaganda artist. Um, so Lenny, poor Lenny, uh, really part of the, the motivation she has for falling into this strange affair with the other terrible character mm. in the book, um, a newspaper editor called Roddy Riseborough. Part of the motivation for that is that she's she's fleeing from her mother who's come to stay with her. She's she's desperate to get away and, and Roddy Riseborough seems to, he's, he's highly seductive and he seems to offer her some kind of freedom. Mm. But, um, you know, doesn't quite turn out like that. Yeah, so there's a whole other story there. But before we get into the Roddy character and that side of it, just sticking mm. with the, the mother-daughter relationship mm. uh, for the time being, the Patty Lenny one. I mean, poor Lenny, she's she's 24. She has a, a little girl, Anna, and she seems reasonably happy in her relationship. Uh, Toby, uh, Theo, sorry, Theo is the is the husband. They seem to be, you know... Ish. Yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're having their own little troubles with yeah. stuff falling apart and stuff not falling apart mm. and, and things like that. And they're they're big fans of attachment parenting. Yes. Where did this where did this all come from? The attachment parenting, I it was when I was starting to plan the book, uh, it was quite a popular thing in the media. And I remember, oh, it was a really sad case of, of Bob Geldof's daughter, Peaches Geldof, who was a, a, a real fan of it. And yet she, subsequently um, she died in, in very tragic circumstances. Um, drug related circumstances and I remember feeling such pity for her that she was 
clearly trying mm. to create this perfect life for, for her children. Well, we should explain what, what we mean by attachment yeah. parenting. Um, oh, yeah. H- how, how would you describe it? Well, it's basically like wearing your baby. It's like you, you, you have your baby with you all the time. You breastfeed your baby, you carry your baby around, you sleep in bed with your baby. Husband sometimes or partner so gets turfed out to the spare room because it's all about the baby, which you know, for many people that works well and I'm not criticising it, yeah. but Lenny in the book, she she's she's desperate for love. She didn't get proper love from her mother growing up and so she she's really desperate to to create a, a, a life that she thinks is is a, a perfect life and, and, a, and a better life for her daughter but it doesn't quite fulfil Lenny because as I say, she, she, she has a, a lack within her and this devil, Roddy Riseborough, um he senses that. He's very good at sniffing out female discontent. And so he has his eye on her. And um, because I think Lenny's so, so, feels so unloved, essentially, yeah. when he starts doing the moves on her, she just falls for him instantly. Yeah, because we have, I suppose, it's it's the two ends of the mother-daughter relationship. Lenny with her young daughter, Anna, and that very close attachment style yeah. of parenting. Yeah. And Patty with her daughter, Lenny, <laughs> Well. Total detachment. In, yeah, exactly. In fact, you, you could argue because uh, Lenny has been brought up for the most part by her by her uh, granny. Um, but Lenny is a journalist, and Lenny uh, starts looking for work, uh, and and this is how she comes across this older man, Roddy Riceborough. So when a journalist is sitting in front of me writing about a journalist, <laughs> yeah, there Full is the obvious question there. Now, this and, is not autobiographical. <laughs> It's funny, actually, my husband hasn't read the book. I think he's he's worried about the depths that my imagination sinks to. Well, I certainly hope that he, that he, he is not or that you don't have a model for Roddy Riceborough. No. Describe this man who has a, a phenomenal past, I suppose, burdening him down in some ways, if he could stand up and say that. Mm. Well, I don't think he could because he's he's a classic narcissist, really. Uh, in terms of his own background, he comes from a very sort of privileged unionist background. He's a for- former RUC officer turned investigative journalist who then became an editor of, of a large daily newspaper. Um, and he's really someone who's desperate for love, but he's never been able to trust it. And so he has these very um, impoverished relationships. And it's not that he doesn't want um, to, to, to have a long-term relationship. He's really not capable of it. So it's almost like he takes takes his female partners as hostages. And um, they are, I, you know, very flattered to begin with, very caught up by the adoration that he gives. And I'm sure there's a lot of women mm. listening will recognise this because it's a bit of a pattern with some men. Um, but as soon as he gets what he wants, as soon as he gets, as soon as he gets that, that, that woman that he wants, then he doesn't want her anymore. And there's the, there is a big age difference between when uh, Roddy would be well into his fifties, really. Yes. At this, at, yeah. in the action of the novel, and Lenny, as I said, is is only in her in in her mid twenties. How important is that age difference aspect to the way he he uses his power? Because it's about a power, isn't it, it? Is. rather than anything else? Yes, it's not really about love. It, it it is about power in the end, and he does use that power in order to bring her into to work at the newspaper under his auspices. 
um, and really he'll do anything to just to, to, to have her exactly where he wants her and I suppose that touches back into what we were saying a few moments ago about um, the, the power of the past as well in many ways Roddy is the past he's you know he's this is he this he's this thing we can't really escape from and so is Lenny's mother too they're both characters from a different era and they are rooted in that era and the question is whether Lenny can free herself from either one of them. The other interesting aspect that again and not necessarily autobiographical but this kind of dynamic I think you might um, expand a little bit on for me which is uh, the Roddy character Lenny writes an article he looks at and he says oh you learned how to write at university would you ever stop that now? So he he kind of belittles her and then gets her to write his way mm-hmm. in many ways but that's kind of the natural writer versus the taught writer do you have opinions <laughs> on that and is it very different for a novel than it is for journalism oh yes I mean obviously I am a journalist myself so I you know do have some some knowledge of, of the way that works and it is of course very different for you know for example from writing a 750 word opinion column which I do every week in the Belfast Telegraph um, to writing a 75,000 word novel but I did, I had this story has been in my head for quite a while and it was just bursting to get out. And although it was scary and I, I did have some trepidation about starting it, once I started, it just, it all, it all flowed. And I did draw on some of my journalistic experience writing about um, Lenny and her work at the, at the newspaper. Um, but I also drew a lot of, on my imagination. <laughs> Uh, and you're you're adamant that Roddy Riceborough, there are no editors living or dead no. <laughs> who would be following us on this one, are there? No, definitely. I mean, I'm kind of horrified at myself, really, for making up such a terrible man out of my own head. Uh, it, was that an enjoyable activity, though? Weirdly, be? yes. <laughs> and, and Patty, the awful mother? Yes, to a certain extent, but... The the Roddy Riceborough character, goodness, yeah, I, I don't know. It was just, it was almost... It was almost fun to create a, a character that just was as shocking and terrible as possible. But at the same time, I didn't want to write him without compassion at all. So I've tried to reflect in the book a little bit of his own very loveless mm. childhood that might, to some extent, explain why he is the way he is. There is an optimism at the end of the book without giving anything or too much away at all. There is a, there is a feeling that things can move forward in, in, in a positive way. It, it, to what extent is that a kind of a, a view of a macrocosm, a macro, you know, a bigger view yeah. of Northern Ireland and its current situation? Yeah, it does reflect on that because I have to believe that that we can move beyond um, all the, the the pain and the darkness that, that that place has gone through. I have to believe that there's there's hope for 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 a better future. But at the same time, I always think of that line from the the Great Gatsby, Scott Fitzgerald's very famous novel. Where he talks about, you know, we we're all boats against the current, being bo- being borne back ceaselessly into the past. I think we always have to fight against that. And novel number two. Oh well, yes, I am at work on that, but um, it's a big secret right now. <laughs> <laughs> Even to you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Vanola, thanks for thanks for coming into us this evening and talking to us about your debut novel, The Stamp of Beauty, which is published by Dalzell Press. Artist Elaine Burns' new exhibition at the Kevin Kavanagh Gallery brings us deep into the Arctic. We follow her trip to the Arctic, where she went in search of the phenomena called Fata Morgana, a mirage created by the strangeness of the Arctic terrain, or perhaps in the mind of the traveller. Elaine also visited deserted mining villages 
ages and brought back samples of fossils that have their origins not in the Arctic but at the equator and South Pole as over the millennia land travelled from south to north poles. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by uh, Elaine Byrne. Um, your, fa- your own fascination with the Arctic, Elaine, has been there for over a decade now but this most recent trip shows we we see you walking on ice flows, visiting this really vertigo challenging these these mining villages. But start with this that phenomenon that I mentioned there, Fata Morgana and the Mirage and its origins. Yeah, well, the Fata Morgana is most likely seen in the polar regions where it appears over the large ice sheets. So I was interested to see if I could actually see one when I went there. Um, I have to say I didn't, but uh, it's particular weather conditions you need to actually see them. But typically then you would see large, you could see cities or boats that actually hang in the air. So it's called a superior mirage because the mirage happens above land. And most of the mirages would be used to seeing, you know, on television or cartoons indeed, are the mirages in the desert, which will be on, you know, on the ground where you see pools of water, you know, that... Um, aren't really existing there. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you about the similarity between the two things as you say uh, in in the case of the if the desert it's on the ground mm-hmm. and it quite often has to do with water I suppose mm-hmm. because of the thirst and the uh, and, and the climate conditions. Are are the the Fata Morgana type of mirages in the Arctic are are they anything got to do are they related to the climatic conditions or perhaps the state of the person travelling in those conditions? No, it is actually to do with the climate conditions. So it's if there's one there, we're all going to see it. It's not that I'm going to go and only I will see it. So it'll be created by when the there's a cold weather is on the earth is is colder than the air above it. So it typically then you'll have a superior mirage while the desert is inferior mirage. It's the opposite happens. So yeah, we'll all see it. So <laughs> rather than a mirage, then. That suggests that it is a real thing. It's an optical phenomenon, yes. So you can photograph it, you can film them. It's it's a real non-real thing, let's put yeah. it like that. Okay, well, look, the city let's... doesn't really exist or the boat is not floating in the air. But everybody sees it. But everybody up, would see up it, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sky, as it were, above, exactly. above the land. Mm-hmm. Let's tweet uh, one of the images from the exhibition. And this is a, a piece called Then You Know. This is a, a, a photograph and we'll put that up now on at RTE Arena. Maybe you'd describe, first of all, what we're looking at here, Elaine, mm-hmm. in this in this image. So this is a um, an image I took actually from a ship, from a tall ship. Um, that was the boat we were sailing around the archipelago in. And I'm looking into a glacier and um, it's a very long exposure shot. So you have this kind of um, repetition in the imagery. And I'm also holding um, a a red lens in front of the image. So it's kind of creating this double vision, so to speak, giving the impression like it's a fashion Morgana, because Mm. as I said, unfortunately, I didn't see one when I was there. (laughs) So... It's kind of, it's a little bit like faking it till you make it, I guess, with that image, making it look like a Fata Morgana when it actually wasn't. But there have been Fata Morganas in the past. 
Oh yes, you know we just weren't we weren't lucky in the weather conditions. We were, were there, you know. Tell sure. me about Ross and and his, this Croker Mountain or his mm. Fata Morgana. Maybe describe that to us. Yes, I was very interested in um, the Arctic naval history and um, particularly this man, uh, Sir John Ross, who went to the Arctic with two ships in eighteen eighteen. And they are actually sent to look for the Northwest Passage and they get to um, Lancaster Sound and he looks out and he sees a mountain in front of him and said, OK, there's no passage here. We're turning around, going back home. But nobody else saw the mountains. So um, they were trying to encourage him to keep going until either they all saw the mountains or he didn't see the mountains. Mm. But unfortunately, he, being the leader he was, he turned them all around and they went back home again. And it caused a great disgrace because the next expedition was sent out to check were there really mountains there or not, and there weren't. So there's a question whether he had a hallucination, a moment of madness. Um, it's very unlikely it was a Fata Morgana because, as I said, everybody would have seen it, just not... One person. Yeah, so, so yeah. I, I, it, the the name Mirage here is slightly misleading in that a Mirage does suggest that it's not there. Mm-hmm. An hallucination is not there. Mm-hmm. A Fata Morgana is there. It is there, but it's, you know, it's it's a projection. Let's, mm. I think it's the best way to say it. It's a projection of an image. So if, it's, if there's a boat on the horizon, for example, sailing, it'll be projected up into the, onto the sky through this weather phenomenon. Yeah, so it, it's something real that is somewhere else that just, exactly. gets, just gets put up. Exactly. Like, like a mirror type of effect. Like is projection. It? Yeah. You know, yeah. The exhibition then brings fossils, which were once trees and are mm-hmm. now rock. They mm-hmm. have travelled quite a distance. Mm-hmm. So just explain your, your researches and what you found in around that particular phenomenon. Yeah, I've been researching for a long time um, Svalbard and the really unusual situation that's there politically because it's has um, Russian towns and Russian-owned land, but all under Norwegian sovereignty. It's a very um, particular region. Um, but as you go even further back in time, right back to mm. 600 million years ago, the land was actually um, in South Pole. And you can, because there's no foliage or no trees or anything in um, Svalbard, you see everything in the rock formation. You see, you know, you can see the red rocks of when it was hanging around the equator and, and you know, what was happening then and what types of plants there were and when, the, when it then moved up a bit north and became more swampy. And so there's all these remnants of trees and plants and fossils of, of leaves, you know, and all types of trees um, and obviously marine animals as well throughout the whole island, which is amazing because, mm. you know, when a place where there is no trees, they're all there at your feet, but in rocks, you know, there's traces of what it used to be like. I mean, I suppose this also suggests that we kind of, in in our position on the globe, must have come from uh, down south at some point, travelling north and possibly some stuff coming from the north and travelling south. Is Our island is, is a kind of a, a conglomeration in that regard, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, and, and the, the movement hasn't stopped. It's still going north, so <laughs> it's still on a trajectory. Yeah. 
But um, you or I will not see that happen. We will not. <laughs> I would guess it's a very slow trajectory unless people get panicked at home. So um, the exhibition then looks back at your own, your long engagement, in fact, uh, that you've had with the Arctic and work that you've done previously about Svalbard and the mining and other industries that has gone mm-hmm. on there. Tell me a little bit more about those those particular communities. Yeah, but Svalbard um, started off really as a mining community. So there was never any native population there. Um, so there was a lot of a Swedish community, mostly um, and Russian community and then Norwegian. Originally, it was a lot of whaling there, um, but that kind of petered out early. And there was two Russian towns um, until fairly recently lived in, uh, only one now. And, you know, coal mining and, and long year been the Norwegian town. Um, still does a little bit of coal mining. There's one coal mine still existing, but the plan is to basically um, stop coal mining in the next five years. So um, given that the whole island is pretty much run on coal, it'd be interesting to see you know, how that's going to survive, particularly the Russian town. And what you've looked at in, in terms of the exhibition then, the way I suppose what you're showing us here is you, the video of you walking on the ice floor. Describe that to us. Mm. So... Again, you know, you can be lucky. And in this particular case, I was. There was a good ice flow when we were sailing up north and um, there was a piece of ice that came by and I was like, okay, do you think it's safe for me to go out on that Mm. ice flow and and get videoed? So um, one of my colleagues was a group of artists on the ship, uh, videoed me walking on the ice flow as it's moving through these international waters. And I'm just kind of circling this piece of ice that's that's it's heading south as we were going north um, through this very desolate landscape. What is the sense of powerlessness when you're on a flow like that, you know, a single human being and this massive geological phenomenon, I suppose it is in some ways, um, that, that you're just, you know, wherever it goes, you're going. You, you, the, the lack of control must be mind-boggling, if not terrifying. Well, you're definitely hoping for the best because <laughs> like, if something goes wrong, it's going to go horribly wrong. Um you know, for example, you know, things like you don't think about in advance, you can't wear a life jacket when you're on the ice flow because mm. if you go under, you're going to get trapped there. So there's things that, you know, you just, it happens so quickly, you know, in a way you did, I didn't necessarily think about all the consequences of what was actually happening, which was maybe a good thing. But um, yes, it's definitely within the landscape, you know, when you watch the video now, you see all the birds going by and, and you know, there's something you know wonderful about that openness of nature and um, and you know the landscape that you have in the Arctic. But when you're looking at that, I mean, we hear so much now in terms of climate change and what is or, or isn't happening to the ice flow in that particular part of the world, and and indeed the paucity of ice now, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the constantly decreasing uh, amount of ice. What are your feelings around that when you're when you're in situ, when you're actually in and around? the Arctic mm-hmm. Circle and the Arctic Ocean? Um, this summer was probably one of the warmest summers they've had. So anybody who's been living there for a while were, was telling us that. So it is a massive issue for Long Yearbin, Um And the whole town itself has shifted position because of the global warming causing land um, slides, actually, uh, given that, you know, 
the snow brings down a lot of rocks and um, quite a few people have had their houses crushed and, and people have lost their lives in Long Yearburn. So you see it very practically there in the town, just, you know, the empty buildings as the town has actually shifted further away from the mountains. Um, but equally, as I said, you know, when I was there in July, you could be in a T-shirt. It wasn't that cold. It was in June, but mm. by July it was... It, it had got the warmest. And to what extent in in the making of your art in general, I mean, because there are, there are previous pieces that we can think of that kind of address this, mm-hmm. I suppose, address this particular part of the world as much as anything else. To what extent are you trying to bring a consciousness in and around climate change or are there other just simple aesthetic concerns in your mind? Um, my primary interest was around the the possibilities of a place like Svalbard, which has no visa restrictions so anybody who, any country that signs the Svalbard Treaty can go and live there. So, you know, what possibilities is there for places, other places like that in the world where you can live and work without a visa? Um, so I was particularly interested in that. And as soon as I went to Svalbard and saw ecologically, it's a bit of a disaster because everything has to be brought into the island. You can't you can't grow anything there. So every bit of food has to come in. Every bit of waste has to come out. And, you know, you obviously, it's been powered by coal. Um, it was not not really made to have as many people living and now primarily a tourist industry. Um, it wasn't really made for, for that. And, you know, I, I, you can only assume it's going to have pretty bad effect on, on the climate um, there. Any plans for a trip back or, or or to the other side down below? Are you heading Antarctic what direction? I would love to go to I'd love to go to Antarctica, yes. Um yes, I'm planning to go back. There is a a university actually in Longyearbyen and they do a lot of research work there. So I'm planning to work with one of the scientists um in the next year and a half on a project there. So it'll be very exciting. Well listen, good luck with that and Thank you very stay much. off the stay off the ice floe. <laughs> Please. <laughs> That's common work, <laughs> Elaine Burns exhibition. Uh, Elaine has been speaking to us about it runs at the Kevin Kavanagh Gallery through until February the 25th. Info at kevinkavanagh.ie on that one. That is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Leah Murphy, Paula Shields, Amandine Passel Devine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Keshi. Talk to you tomorrow night once again. Among my guests, Lisa O'Neill, very interesting on her new album. That is tomorrow night here on Arena.